0: Uh, I'm delighted to see so many of you here this evening to learn more about a topic that receives far too little attention in the United States uh, the trafficking of women for sexual exploitation. The trade in women is a booming global industry. By some estimates, women constitute the second most profitable commodity for organized crime networks after illegal drugs, uh, netting more than weapons. Since the 1960s, we've witnessed large-scale trafficking of women from Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, and Latin America. And since the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, we've seen the global sex trade extend to that region as well. Today, Eastern Europe supplies most of the prostitutes to the West European market. The transitions from socialism Um, to market economies in Eastern Europe brought about the feminization of poverty and increased gender discrimination. The lack of employment options has forced many women into migration in search of opportunities. These factors come into play against a background of the weak rule of law, widespread corruption, and the fast growth of international organized criminal networks organized criminal gangs supply the demand for cheap and compliant sex workers um, wherever they find it, because it is both lucrative and low risk. According to Interpol, a pimp in Europe can easily earn 110,000 euro a year. In the most typical pattern, A woman seeking employment opportunities um, answers an ad for jobs as nannies, domestic workers, um, dancers, models. um, A recruiter uh, makes all the arrangements for her, uh, accompanies her across the border, and then sells her to another person, and she becomes a commodity. Um, Held in isolation, she finds her passport is confiscated, And she is told that she is now in debt to her new owner and must work off the debt through prostitution. Her compliance is assured through threats or beatings or possibly rape. The woman has no say over whom she services or how, uh, and she receives little of the money or none of the money that she actually earns. She may be resold and transported to other places repeatedly. And this is of course a form of modern day slavery. Trafficking in women encompasses encompasses issues of law enforcement and crime, (laughs) corruption and rule of law, inequality and discrimination, economic deprivation, and migration. Above all, it represents a violation of the fundamental, fundamental human rights of women. This aspect has only recently come into focus and begun earning the attention it deserves. Our speaker tonight is one of the individuals who has worked hard to make this happen. Madeline Reese is head of the Women's Rights and Gender Unit of the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, a position she has held since September 2006. Her office focuses on ways to achieve gender equality and to promote women's human rights, concentrating on legal protection and advocacy She works to make the human rights uh, activities of the United Nations more responsive to gender issues, particularly in post-conflict situations. In this context, she strives to address um, the needs of women who have suffered, in particular, sexual violence, and to do so by listening to what they have to say rather than imposing an outside perception on them. Madeline Reese has wide-ranging experience, both professionally and geographically. She initially trained and worked as a secondary school teacher uh, and taught in her native UK. Uh, She then spent four years in Latin America, where she also taught uh, and engaged in feminist activism, uh, which drew her to law. After earning her law degree, she worked in the Women's Legal Defense Fund, and and subsequently became partner in a law firm where she specialized in discrimination law as well as public and administrative law. Reese worked on behalf of both the Commission for Racial Equality and the Equal Opportunities Commission in Great Britain and brought cases both uh, before the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court in Luxembourg. After the war in Bosnia, Reese decided to contribute to the work of the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. In 1997, she moved to Bosnia and Herzegovina, serving initially in the the office of the International Ombudsperson. She was subsequently recruited by the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights uh, to be the gender expert and head of its office in Bosnia. In that capacity, she worked extensively on the issue of human trafficking, striving to create a victim-centered approach, uh, and striving to counter the attitudes of indifference or, the, or criminalization of the trafficked women. In Bosnia, Rees also worked on other issues relating to discrimination, rule of law, transitional justice, and the protection of women's social and economic rights. She served on the expert coordination group of the Trafficking Task Force of the Stability Pact and the Alliance Against Trafficking. From Bosnia, Reese moved to Geneva to her current position in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Madeline Reese has worked tirelessly to force the international community and state governments to pay attention to gender issues, particularly economic discrimination, violence against women, and trafficking. I'm honored and delighted uh, that she was able to join us here today at Stanford, uh, where she will address the failures of identification and response to trafficking of women in Eastern Europe. Please join me in extending a very well, warm welcome to Madeline Reese.
1: My goodness. Well, thank you very much for that very warm introduction. Um, Just as well no one was evaluating me on all those things I was trying to do and haven't actually (laughs) achieved. Um, But first of all, my thanks to Catherine and to Laura for getting all of us here, for inviting us, and for actually organizing, and I think everyone who's supposed to be here has actually managed to get here. Um, you nearly lost me, because for some unfathomable reason, I decided that going for a run was a good idea this afternoon. Um, and being British and not used to grid systems, I got myself lost. So instead of coming, arriving cool, calm, and collected to you know, come and talk to you, I arrived as a hot, sweaty mess, and no time for you know, organizing myself, probably, so I apologize. Um, when I was in Bosnia, obviously I was working very very much on the issue of trafficking, and when Catherine invited me to do this talk, um, she asked for the title of the talk, and Catherine will remember it was like going to and fro and to and fro because I could not think of one. I mean, the ones that sprang immediately to mind was great muck-ups I have seen, Um, the bad, the Worse, and absolutely ridiculous, cognitive dissonance in the interventions that we make in relation to trafficking. Um, and whilst I haven't adopted any of those titles, they are, in fact, the ones that are most pertinent, as I think you'll see as I go through what it is I want to talk about today. Um, what I want to really sort of express is that is looking at the interventions that we make in trying to deal with trafficking, not only are responses to a phenomenon, they actually dictate how the phenomenon therefore grows and manifests. Um, And I say that as backdrop, because what I want to now do is is say a little about what trafficking is, expanding on what Catherine's already said, put it in the context of Eastern Europe and the Balkans, then be unashamedly a Bosnia bore by telling you exactly how it worked in Bosnia, but leaving the great details to Martina for tomorrow, because she will go into an in-depth analysis of some of the worst parts of that, and then to try and draw some conclusions for how we would deal with, with trafficking in a much more... Uh, coherent and competent way than perhaps we have done to date. Um, so what is trafficking? Um, most of you will probably know there is now a legal definition that came from the result of the negotiations from the Transnational Organised Crime Convention, note Transnational Organised Crime Convention, and the Protocol on Trafficking and uh, its, uh, its sister, the Protocol on Smuggling, which was to give us the definition of trafficking for the first time under international law. I am not going to be a law lawyer. Because that would drive many of you to distraction, including myself, because it is complicated and it hasn't necessarily helped us get to where we need to be. So, all I'm going to say about the, the legal definition that is given is that, and it came into force in 2003 when there had been sufficient ratifications, is that it means the recruitment of individuals through some form of coercion or fraud or deceit. It means their transfer across a border according to the definition for the Transnational Organised Crime Convention, across the border, um, into the custody of a third party. And at the end result of that, there must be exploitative labour, which is the difference between smuggling and trafficking. Smuggling, you do all of the above, and then, well, not necessarily the deceit part, but you move people, but you don't necessarily exploit them at the end. If you exploit them at the end, then you are in the, the business of trafficking. That's all I want to say on what it is, and that's far too simplistic, but... Note again, it is the Transnational Organised Crime Convention. Therefore, the focus is on crime and not on human rights protections. Um, there is reference to human rights in the, in the protocol, but it's really phrased in such a way as states shall, in to the best of their extent, where they can, which is not binding at all, whereas the criminal provisions are. Now, people like me would say, of course, as a matter of international human rights law, they are obliged to provide those protections if they have ratified the relevant treaties, but it's that sort of a persuasive argument that you have to take on with governments when they've got it in their heads, they're dealing with a criminal offence. So, so that's, put on the back burner, that's our legal definition of trafficking, where we are now. Now, what does it mean? And again, building very much on what um, Catherine's already said, people have very different perceptions of what trafficking is and I've always used the, the phrase that it very much is in the position of the observer as to how you see what trafficking might be. For some, it is an issue of economic, um, economic disempowerment, of poverty, and in the, that particularly in the context of, of globalization. And it is, absolutely, it is that. Some see it as discrimination in the way that um, women particularly, are treated in certain societies and therefore may cause the need for migration. Lack of access to education, healthcare, etc., etc., lack of access to employment may encourage women to go and find work elsewhere. Same as the failure to protect from domestic violence and abuse can cause people to try to, try to leave and end up um, seeking employment in a different country. All of those are proven, all of those are analysed, all of those are seen to be part of the trafficking um, phenomenon. Some see it then as an element of migration, which is tick number one and two, and number three is migration. And of course, trafficking happens within a migration context. The difference is that people start off migrating for economic reasons. Rich people don't migrate unless it's for tax purposes. It is poor people who migrate in search of some form of better and enhanced subsistence. And most people don't want to stay migrated. They want to go back. So this is another uh, phenomenon that I think we need to throw into the mix. So there is this um, phenomenon of migration for a temporary short period of time, which is particular for Eastern Europe in any case, and has been uh, from a historical perspective, that people will migrate, work abroad, send money home, go home. And it's a success. And many communities have, in Bosnia and the Balkans, have actually been basically their economic subsistence has been based on this idea of of, um, remuneration. So there's a migration process, there's a migration story, there's a migration necessity involved in trafficking. And again, some of the interventions we make will then turn that migration pattern into one of trafficking and exploitation. There are those who also see it as an issue predominantly related to sex work and prostitution. Because one form of exploitive labor that ends as a result of trafficking is, of course, sexual exploitation. So that's one. And another one would be the one that clearly I would advocate, which is the human rights perspective, which would tick all of the above boxes and say, how do we deal with any of these from the human rights perspective? So all of them have their role. All of them have their place. Um, But what my position is on this, and I hope will become clear through the way in which I'm going to develop the arguments, is if you focus on one, you get it wrong. Unless, perhaps, it is on sorting out the reasons why people are forced to migrate in the first place, which is about the economics of poverty and globalization, which we're not going to fix overnight. If we can fix that, then, okay, different discussion. But all of the others, if you do law enforcement, if you do migration, absent human rights, or if you do prostitution versus sex work versus trafficking, might get it wrong, any of those things out of context, without having an integrated understanding of how the whole thing hangs together, and you are going to have an uncoordinated, in the end, incoherent response, which is not going to result in what you want, which is to prosecute traffickers and to provide assistance to traffic persons. Basic bottom line. Prevention, of course, being by far the better uh, of, of any of the options. Excuse me, my voice went a bit because of the air conditioning on the planes. So that's what trafficking is made up of. Um, Vital importance to understand is that trafficking is very much, very, very much, a product of free enterprise. It is the free market capitalism gone mad. You know, they are the elite of the entrepreneurs. I always said when I was working in Bosnia, if only we could get one of them to defect to our side, then we would understand how they're identifying the market. Now, how are they understanding where there's going to pop up another market here later? How have they managed to create that market? Where are they knowing to go and get people from? how do they know all this? How do they know the modalities? They're brilliant. But they do it for all the wrong reasons and they never migrate to our side so we never find out exactly how they do it. But it is essentially a very much a free market activity. So therefore you have to approach it as such. The other thing to remember is that it is a highly gendered affair. Men, women, boys and girls all get trafficked. We tend to talk about the women and the girls. We forget that certainly in... in um, a recent study that's being published by UNDP in relation to Russia, 80% of those trafficked into Russia are men. But it's for construction. So the outcome or construction or for agricultural work, and in other countries it's for forced mining or you know, other activities which are essentially seen as masculinized, because we do have this gender stereotype. So what happens to you, I mean, both all these people get trafficked, but the outcome is highly gendered, and then the outcome of that is highly gendered, because... If you're forced into construction work and you are deported and repatriated, no consequences. If you're forced into prostitution and you're deported and uh, returned, then there are consequences. Because you will find yourself in a worse situation than you were before, because not only are you a failed migrant, but you are now a prostitute. So there are different outcomes for men and for women, and clearly there is a difference in, in terms of the actual physical activity that is, the, that is the exploitative labor, because for women it will have enormous health consequences, enormous potential in relation to pregnancy and HIV. So that there are different ways in which you should approach that in knowing what you're going to have to offer in order to provide the protection and the assistance which should be required. So that's what it is in a very, very brief form- format. Context of Eastern Europe. Um, I started working there, as I said, from from 1996 onwards. I was involved in the the Balkans. Um, Eastern Europe, as you would know, had been going through this incredible transitional period. And I would leave that to the historians and the academics to explain far better what that meant. But essentially what was happening was that the, the organized state economies had walked straight whack into the free market and capitalism without the support networks. So there was no, the, social, the social safety nets weren't there to catch those who fell through them, and those who fell through them were enormous swathes of the population. So from the cradle-to-grave socialism protection, there was now nothing. And if you look at the salaries and the, the survival rates in, in terms of uh, monies going into family incomes, it was less than $30 a month in places like Moldova. Now, that's nothing. That is not enough to support a family on. And with no employment prospects, we have a lot of the Eastern European countries, particularly Moldova, Romania, and Ukraine, being in situations where the migration was enormous. Um, It was estimated that more than half the population at Moldova is not there at any one time because they have migrated, a lot of them successfully, the vast majority successfully, because it's the other thing we've Most people who migrate do so quite well, send remittances home, and then go home, and then are deemed to be a success, and the next one, the family has a go. Um, so, in fact, it's, it's not all doom, gloom, and disaster, but it is doom, gloom, and disaster for the ones who get into the cycle of having to be, of being trafficked. So, Eastern Europe, then, is in this, this dire mess, and you don't have to be the entrepreneur to realise countries in a dire mess where people are desperate to migrate to find other opportunities is potentially your source, if you like, to fulfil a demand. So that's our context of um, Eastern Europe generally. say incredibly superficially done, I do apologise. But we then enter into the Balkans. And the Balkans from 1991 onwards, as we know, was a, uh, the haven of... of uh, not haven, it was the conflict zone. Um, in ways which were indescribable, but in ways which then have huge consequences in relation to how the trafficking issue was dealt with as a result. Um, And this is the thing that I say, make no apologies for for going now to spend a bit of time on Bosnia, because um, what I'm saying in relation to Bosnia is applicable almost anywhere in relation to trafficking. Um, The difference being that it was conflict, and it is the worst scenarios that happen. Like, everything bad you can do in relation to trafficking happened in Bosnia. But it gives us the example of the demand, the markets, the transportation, the movement, the coercion, what happens to the women, and then the differences of the approaches that I was talking about at the beginning. When we did it right, when we did it wrong. Well, I'm saying when we did it right, we had a tiny, tiny bit that we did right. Um, So what I want to do now is use that to exemplify those parts and then hopefully come to some conclusions which might be more generally applicable. Um, Apologies to those people in the room who have heard me make this speech before, at least three of you, but in 1995 it was recognized that there was an issue of trafficking, not by the international community, but by those who had, that were working with women who had been uh, forced into rape camps, um, and by certain judges, and by certain journalists. But it wasn't recognized as trafficking. We put the label to it. They recognized that what was happening was that they were seeing foreign women who were being prosecuted for prostitution, and who were coming back before them again and again, and that some of them were... Um, I won't go into the law for what was actually happening to them, but they were coming back before the same judges again and again. And why? You know, they are 1995 countries still at war, and we have foreign women who are ostensibly working in Bosnia as prostitutes. Now, how weird is that? That was the first time I heard of it, or heard about it, sort of afterwards when it was related to me. When they first thought it was happening. Now, stop a moment and enter stage right the analysis that could and should have been made on. Bosnia and post-conflict situations generally and there's been a lot of work done by this guy uh, Pugh from um, Brunel University and I was very impressed by his talk he gave not very long ago when he was talking about the economy of Bosnia post-conflict. Now I could have told him this, NGOs could have told him this, fortunately he had been doing his own research and come to the same conclusions, that what happens in the conflict and what happens post-conflict is that the normal structures get knocked down, obvious. what what actually happens is that the informal economic structure, the informal economy, starts to flourish. This happens everywhere. Because goods are in short supply, because you can't get them, you set up your mechanisms for trade. And then that leads to those people who can control the mechanisms for trade having the elevated status within communities because they control the money, the goods and the money. So that during the conflict in Bosnia, um, there was an entirely multi-ethnic cooperation in getting food, guns, and anything else that was necessary. And, and this is something that is, is still not really well documented or well um, certainly has not come out through the histories of it, that the multi-ethnic uh, community existed when it came to money. And there are actually sort of recordings of top generals in the defense of Mostar buying their guns from the Serbs who were shelling them on the outside um, in, because of this nice little money-making racketeering that was going on. So no real ethnic identity going on, but identity with each other as brothers in smuggling and all the rest of it. They became hugely wealthy. They became hugely wealthy as a result of illegal activities. They controlled the illegal economy. And these are not the sort of people you really want to have running your country afterwards. But in the post-conflict moment, in such a rush to solidify the Dayton Peace Agreement, um, we, the international community, had elections in April uh, uh, 1996 Um, which actually then put into power those people that these guys were affiliated with. Because what these guys did was they provided the guns, they provided the food, they provided the support for the political parties who could then continue to wage the conflict even though it was coming from rather strange sources. So these guys, they they have this nexus. Also to say that the people who were in the, the negotiating position for Dayton also had a vested interest in some of these rackets continuing. So you end up with, in 1995, when this trafficking is happening, a situation where, I won't call it organized crime because that gives it too much finesse. What it is, it's organized criminal activity which isn't necessarily homogenous, but has been working along different trading routes. The trading route from Serbia through the north and through the east, and the trading route from from Morocco, from Montenegro in the south, in order to provide for the survival of those people in the communities. Um, So a huge amount of illegal activity. What happens at the end of the conflict is that, again, these are the entrepreneurs. We have this destabilization. We have this money-making from illegal economic activity. The continuation is now done through the identification of the market, the market being the 60,000-plus peacekeepers. Um, And no one's saying that the 60,000 peacekeepers came in saying, we want to have sex. That was not within their mandate. But you've got 60,000 men, predominantly, and you have a market in Eastern Europe for the conditions that I've already explained, and you have a border which is, it almost doesn't exist because it is so porous. There are no border checks. You can cross it with impunity on boats. And many of the bridges have been, have been blown up during the conflict by NATO. Um, but you could cross. So effectively, we had perfect, perfect conditions. No rule of law. Conditions of... Easily easy transport, trading routes already having been established, a ready-made market, and a ready-made supply. And it sounds brutal to talk about it in those terms because the supply is, of course, the women and the children that we're talking about who are brought across. So at that stage, 1995 onwards, we had this massive influx. And I will say it was a massive influx because um, when we started really trying to get to grips with it, um, the first conference we had was 1998, three years late, by which time that process had become institutionalized in that um, we did an exercise. We brought people together. We brought um, law enforcement. We brought NGOs together. We brought international community together. And just so within your own experience, in localities, can you name localities in the places where you're working, where you know that women from uh, from outside of Bosnia are working, and you think, in the sex industry? And, you know, how many? And um, we thought it would be a, a five-minute exercise we just wrote on the flip chart. You know. It took forever, because... They were identified every single little tiny village in the middle of nowhere would have its so-called brothel. It could be the local cafe with two women in it. It could be, and the majority were, in fact, little localized businesses on the junctions of the crossroads, which again goes back to Pew's analysis because, you know, if you're doing illegal trading, you need to be fairly flexible. The one thing that's not flexible is where you have an intersection So you always use your points of of, uh, departure, if you like, at the intersection. So from that intersection, you can shift your business. So there were brothels on the intersections. The majority of brothels were outside the bases. Now, how obvious is that? And they were given names according to whichever battalion was there. So, you know, they think Virginia was outside the American base. And then you'd have Sherwood Castle, not far from the British base. And then you'd have, on and on, you could tell exactly who was going to go in there by the name (laughs) that was given to the the brothel so that everyone would feel at home. Um, But that phase, at this stage, what we're talking about really is, is no law enforcement, no migration controls, and then a constant supply. The whole process being characterized by extreme violence and coercion. So the first woman I met um, had come from, and they told me their first story, and then this came up again and again and again, as being the identifiable route. Nearly all of them were recruited by either several different ways, the ways that Catherine's already said, but also, this being the Balkans, through word of mouth, your brother's best friend, who you trust, or the local shopkeeper you've been buying things off since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, he tells you, that he can find a way for you to migrate safely, you trust him, so word of mouth, and then off you go. The vast majority were brought from any of those uh, those countries into Belgrade. In Belgrade, their passports would be taken if they had legal passports, and they'd be given a new passport with a new identity. Now, that's all part of the disempowerment process, because if you don't have your passport, you suddenly become an illegal migrant in any case, even if you could have had a legal document that would have allowed you to cross a border. A lot of women at that stage still did not know that they were not going off to be hairdressers or um, dancers or bar workers or whatever was promised to them. They still didn't know. Some of them were forced to find out very harmfully by being multiply raped by once they were in Belgrade, which sort of gets them into the idea of what they're going to have to do. And I so say the whole thing characterized by extreme violence and coercion um, because absolutely no controls whatsoever. And the first one I spoke to had, in fact, come through Eastern. They'd done this route. they got into uh, eastern Bosnia, where they were kept in a, uh, in a brothel where there were armed guards and attack dogs. Um, they had managed to escape bless them. They had managed to get out. And they just kept moving. And when I, when I met them, they had um, gone to the local police. Local police had called me because they, you know, this, this is very interesting how that had happened. I'll tell you about it later. Um, but they called me, and one of the first things they said was, what happened to Germany? And I said, what do you mean? They thought they were in Germany. And they said, you know, what happened to it? Because there was all this destruction on the way they'd they'd come down into Sarajevo and and they'd seen all this, and they didn't know, know, why the reconstruction from the Second World War had been so slow. But anyway, so they got out. Um, But they were very lucky. Because what we actually, the the realities of it was, the absence of border controls and absent law enforcement, was that we had women coming across um, and then... Their passports would be taken from them. Usually bar owners would take all the passports, then take them to local police to get stamps in them. Local police are not being paid, um, and if they are being paid, it's three months too late, or, and it's, it's a very, very small amount. Absolutely open to corruption, even if it's turning a blind eye. But they have survival needs themselves. You know, I'm not saying this is uh, justifiable, but... That's what was happening. And essentially, they'd charge for each stamp they put in, and then the bar owners could act with impunity. So we had this perfect system, this perfect system for making money on the part of the the traffickers. Um, Who were the the market? At this stage, as I said, we've only got, and this has now been, I think, accepted by the international community. It was a vast, vast majority, more than 90% was the international community. How do we know that? It's because they were the only ones with access. There was a curfew, in Bosnia, and if you drove past any of the brothels, it was the UN cars you'd see outside. They were the only ones with the money. The the Bosnians had not used cars for five years, so they couldn't have access. So the vast majority at at that time was, in fact, the peacekeepers and the the UN, and particularly the International Police Task Force. Um, And this is very interesting because I had a a conversation with one of the the first um, special representatives of the Secretary General, Kai Ida, who's a lovely Norwegian guy, Um, And he was working with the OSC then. He said, you know, one of the the things I will never forgive myself is the failure to diagnose what was happening at that stage. And this is the 95 to about 1999. He said, I thought contingent commanders were dealing with it, but it was never openly discussed. And so we did not look at it. Now, just if we pause there and if we look at, at, at what I've said about trafficking in terms of what we need in terms of analysis, in terms of law enforcement, in terms of human rights protections, we had none of it. Now, one of the lessons learned must be that the analysis at the beginning of our involvement, if the international community is involved post-conflict, one of the analysis must incorporate the high potential for trafficking, for sex, sexual exploitation. And <coughs> just as a side here, We never had any, um, the vast majority of of, um, trafficking for exploitation was sex. Um, There is now, there was some for begging, for for Roma children particularly later, but nothing else, but that's because, you know, partly because there's nothing else that was no economic activity that was there for people to be exploited for. So that was, in a way, the the first phase. Um, And as I said, what we were really, really concerned about was, was how to give the protection to women because we were not ready. Because clearly, a human rights approach should then have been, well, what do women need? What are they asking for? And those first two I met, they wanted to go home. So how can they get home? How can they get home when, in fact, um, they don't have finances, their documents are illegal? And I should just mention that I, I would correct myself in saying there was no law enforcement response. There was a law enforcement response, but it was entirely and completely wrong. Because what they were doing was... They believed um, that prostitution was a pathological illness and that these women should be separated from the rest of the communities, prosecuted because um, prostitution was and remains illegal in Bosnia, but both for the man and for the woman. But, you know, great difference that made um, because never followed up. One. Women were being prosecuted, and if they're prosecuted for prostitution, what, they were, what happened then is because of the bizarre setup of, of Bosnia, they wouldn't necessarily be deported out of the border, they'd be deported into the next canton. So then off you go to the next canton, and then you'd be picked up by your traffickers and brought back. So you'd end up with this swirling mass of humanity the women getting prosecuted and fined and deported. And we were able to stop that. Um, the, the one advantage of being part of the international community is you can get them to make a, a bit like dictatorship you shall not do that, and they were not allowed to do that. So there was to be no deportation from Bosnia or from the cantons without the, without the consent and approval of UNHCR, because of the refugee issue, and without the consultation with the International Police Task Force, which is ironic. Um, but then, So that was stopped. Then you have this, what we were then trying to do, is this huge amount of um, awareness raising, as to what trafficking was and what the human rights protection should be. I say we, that being mainly the non governmental organizations who are by far and away the driving force behind identification and assistance to people who have been trafficked. Our role as the Office of the High Commissioner was to try and do the negotiations with the government, to, to insist on it as a matter of law, to try and get the laws reformed. That's what, that was our role. And to try and coordinate the activities of all the other players in playing nicely together to respect human rights. So we we didn't, what we didn't want was law enforcement to do its business, arrest the woman or rescue the woman even, hand them over to IOM and have them repatriated. So you just ended up with just removing the problem and putting it it somewhere else without looking at what the women's needs really were. That's what we were trying to do. Um, But I have to say, the initial responses were incredibly ad hoc, um, partly because of lack of resources. But also very interesting that one of our concerns had been that we would not um, put at risk the women and the people who were trying to help them because we thought traffickers would come after them, (laughs) Well, how stupid we were, because it's so easy to buy women that there was no need to come after them to stop them testifying because there was no way for them to testify, they wouldn't do it. um, And so therefore, if you lose 2,000 euros or 2,000 marks, then so what? You'll make it up. Because by this stage, um, and this is important to mention now, I think, that uh, we had a change in modalities because it becomes more organized. And I say they're coming from Belgrade, they're crossing the Sava River. By that stage, the international community had set up um, the Arizona market. Fabulous idea. Um, we will bring all the ethnic groups together to trade, and that's how we will get peace and reconciliation and everything else. Nice idea. Um, but it became the, the haven for all the black market illegal activities. Even the women who tried to get in the market to try and sell lettuce they had to pay money to, be able to, the, to the people who were running the show in order to do it. Entirely multi-ethnic, yes, great, but it's those same guys I was talking about who worked together during the conflict who came to dominate Arizona market, and that's where the women ended up going. It became the biggest sex slave market that there has been, I think, since Roman times. Literally, women would be brought out and their breast size, their teeth, their length of hair would be assessed, and money would be offered for her. And it was completely open. You could go there and see it, and nobody batted an eyelid. And what was happening with these women was that you'd, uh, the, the, anybody could go by, small, non-involved with, with um, organized crime, individuals would go and buy two women to have in a local coffee shop, where you, know, you you could go and have a cup of coffee, you could go upstairs and you could buy sex, but not allowed to leave. And we had so many journalists who were able to come and identify exactly what was going on. And again, nothing very much done to try and prevent that. The good side, in a way, of it being so, adho- of it being so sort of widespread and so unorganized crime like, because it had spread so far, was that many, many, many women were able to escape. So when we said we had this ad hoc response, our response was governed by how many women would run away. They would run away, and we'd we'd got little stickers. We'd come to, and they would go to IOM, and they would come to us, and then we'd work with the NGOs to try and then basically put them on buses and get them home. And there was, you know, I can't say that it was a good system because we weren't able to offer very much at all. This stage, um, say, no money for it, but it was quite successful in a bizarre sort of way, but very interesting because we were getting the information from women who they didn't, you know, they didn't, they wanted to go home. They wanted to tell us what has happened. They didn't want to stay and testify. They were terrified of the police. And one of the reasons they were terrified of the police is because one of the controls that are used by traffickers everywhere is the same, which is basically if you tell the police, then they are part, they're in, they're in with us. And the chances are you've been servicing someone from IPTF or you've been servicing one of the local police the night before. So you know that what they're saying could well be true. So you don't, so you're, you do not know, you go to law enforcement because you fear then, in fact, they are not going to offer you the protection they want. Um, so essentially, um, women we were escaping. We were trying to help them just skip back across the border to where they would go, and there was an NGO network which would actually facilitate that. So women would be met at various stations by representatives of NGOs, and then, we hope, arrive safely home. We hope. there was never. We were never really able to follow up. Clearly, that's not a good system either. It's too ad hoc. It doesn't incorporate any of the elements other than one, which is the right to return home for those that wanted it. So this takes, we're still mucking through this mess until about 1999, 2000, um, when it becomes obvious that we do have a serious problem of trafficking. As it becomes obvious to the the, uh, international community, it was becoming, it'd been pretty obvious (coughs) to the Bosnians for some considerable time and to the women and to the NGOs for some considerable time. What then happens from about 99, 2000 to 2003 is like the second phase. Because we get changing modalities with trafficking. And so this is why Bosnia is such the example. Um, Because the first phase is characterized by extreme violence and coercion and non-payment and appalling treatment of women and large numbers. Second phase, it is much more sophisticated. Much more sophisticated. Um, And the response becomes more sophisticated. Um, and they don't necessarily um, track each other, but there are clearly um, greater efforts by the international community to recognize and do something, and greater efforts by, or by, the, uh, by the traffickers to do something to legitimize the illegitimate. And this is how the cycles always work. So we're in that phase, really on to 2000. Um, We're still in that phase where we don't have any deportations. We are getting the beginnings of a structure of human rights protections. I just want to go off on a little sort of tangent, if I may, uh, to talk a little bit about the role of the United Nations in this. And this is why I'm very glad I'm over this side of the country and not over in New York, because that would be far too close to headquarters. They might know what I'm talking about. Um, As I said before, that one of the greatest seemingly... Um, and now, admittedly, uh, the greatest users of the, uh, the women who had been trafficked was, in fact, the United Nations International Police Task Force. Um, and there was impunity. They have this what they call functional immunity, which should have been waived for any offences they committed, not within the purview of their employment. But no, we don't think of that. You know, basically, they're here; they can do what they like. Nothing, nothing, nothing was done about their conduct. Nothing was done by the the Special Representative who actually said that he would not dictate for morality, that boys will be boys, basically. So you know, if they want to go off and do this, that was something outside his purview. Um, you may have heard of the case of Kathy Bolkovats okay, Because she, Kathy Bolkovats, Um she was a very excellent IPTF officer who was the one who blew the whistle on what was going on. Um, And even before she came to blow the whistle, there was this enormous event in Luka, which I think Martina will talk more fulsomely about tomorrow, where six very brave uh, IPTF officers went off and raided a brothel and rescued 40-odd women and brought them to Sarajevo, where we met with them in the UN building, um, some of whom were as young as 12 and 13 and were prepubescent children. I mean, it was the most horrific thing. So they, you know, great success. Everyone's lauding the fact that these guys did it, um, and then we come back to reality that in fact these guys had not done it because they were so upset with the trafficking. They had done it because they'd been shaking down some of the establishments who had not paid them. And this is what happened. And there was a huge furore in Bani Luka where the bar owners' association went to claim their property back. And they were saying, "We buy and trade. We buy and sell footballers. So we're buying and selling women. What's your problem?" You know, and they had made T-shirts saying, IPTF, go home. Um, and then there's wonderful stories of you know, how the, the um, SRSG was, was accompanying these guys to the airport with his arms around them, saying he was so sorry to lose them and everything else. These guys had, as I say, were two Americans, two British and two Spaniards, and they had been engaging, actively engaging, in illegal activities. Um, they then were recirculated and went off to serve in other peacekeeping missions. So, we have a huge problem because their criminal activity was neither recognized, even though it was screamingly obvious. There were investigations, by the way, and the people who were investigating, investigating them got threatened so as not to publicize the findings of their um, investigations. Um, and then we were left with the 40 odd people that had to be given assistance. Um, that was one screamingly obvious example. Um, the clear major pattern was the fact that guys from the international community were using women and children um, and not caring about whether they were trafficked or whether they voluntary in the sex industry. Um, What Kathy Bolkovats did, (coughs) she was the person, she was the gender advisor to IPTF. She then took on the issue of trafficking, became the trafficking advisor. So her job was actually to track what was happening, to see what was, what was happening in the bars and elsewhere. And, of course, she knew that the IPDF were very much engaged in, in going to these bars and perpetuating the problem. She kept reporting that, and she get, it got more and more isolated and marginalized. I went down to the canteen, and she's on her own. Everyone else is over there. And it's clear what is happening, that essentially she was not being one of the lads. She was trying to hold them accountable. She ended up sending this incredible memo explaining the difference between prostitution and trafficking, explained to these guys what they were doing to women and what was happening as a result. She sent it internally. She, cop- she copied the heads in her chain of command, myself included. Um, and I thought, brilliant, well done, Cathy. Next thing, she's called in and she is basically removed from her position for having broken the chain of command. Now, we went in all guns fighting for her, but eventually she's an employee of DynCorp because America does not provide people for, um, uh, for international service you have to go through the agency DynCorp, the company DynCorp. And I think those of you who are in the know know the relationship of DynCorp to Halliburton, to whatever. Um, they then were the ones that we held accountable. And I'm very glad to say that Cathy was able to bring a successful court case against DynCorp in the United Kingdom, won substantial damages, and in one of the most damning um, uh, summaries or judgments by the tribunal that held a case about the conduct of the United Nations and of DynCorp, in k- trying to shut her up and silence her on such an important issue, and even lying in the evidence about at least about these six guys. Um, so in, in that respect, we had this horrible, horrible situation where the peacekeepers were the ones who were perpetuating the situation. Now, that, again, another one, can't go on in perpetuity. I mean, partly because I was there, so the number of times they tried to have me sacked is almost legendary, and thank God for Mary Robinson. Otherwise, I would have been. Um, but it led to Another situation, this is where I said from bad to worse to totally ridiculous, because the UN decided that the best way of dealing with it was, in fact, to have bar rates. So they set up this thing called Stop. Um, stop. Sorry? Oh, is this to bar, have bar rates? Bar, bar rates, raiding of bars or places where the bar rates... Um, <laughs> And what, the most interesting thing was they appointed a French woman journalist to run the whole thing. She got no police background, nothing. But it was clearly, a, you know, what it was, which was, oh, should we do it just like they do in the movies? You know, basically, we have helicopters, and we run to bars, and we raid them. And then what we do is that we take all the women out, and we arrest the traffickers. And the trouble is... By that stage, we have got women who aren't necessarily unhappy about working there because we've had a change. By the end of 2001, 2001, some of the women have been there so long that they are, in fact, now earning money. They've paid off their debt. There is this beginning of the legitimization of the illegitimate, and they are earning money. And they don't want to be rescued. Or if they do want to be rescued, it's because they know the bar down the road is paying more money with better conditions. Not all of them, but some of them. And so, what was happening was the IPG at this stop. Um, We're going with helicopters now. Raid a bar. Then they'd raid the same bar again because the women wouldn't come with them. Then they'd raid it again because the women wouldn't come with them. And then eventually um, either give up. I mean, one bar was raided 40 times with absolutely no results whatsoever. And all you're doing with bar raids, if you do them over and over and over again, is that you are harassing. So the clientele then will take their business elsewhere, which is a good thing, maybe. But you know, traffickers aren't stupid. They're not going to sit there waiting for the police to come and do law enforcement through bar aids. What they're going to do is they're going to shift the business. And so it goes underground. It goes into private apartments. It goes into restaurants. It goes into hotel rooms where it is extraordinarily difficult to police and extraordinarily difficult to track and horrible for the women because they're no longer together. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in a a moment just to to explain exactly what the women were doing, what was happening, what their experiences was from the beginning to the end, so I'll I'll not dwell on on that element too much now. But essentially, the stock programme was a bit of a disaster. Um, Parallel to that, we then have the growth of the, I've got to mention it, the International Organisation for Migration and huge amounts of money that are now coming in to deal with trafficking in Bosnia because finally it's been recognised as a huge problem. Um, what they were offering um, was to break from the human rights approach and go into the migration approach it's very popular with with western governments not to have migrants from eastern Europe coming to western Europe very popular so it's very nice if you can have an organisation which will pick them all up and dump them back where they came from Um, and if they say they can provide the full package they can do shelter and human rights protections meaning i'll provide a shelter i'll give them health care i'll give them um, legal advice and then i will take them home and then i will give them reintegration assistance as well then it looks great on paper because you can scoop them all up and send them all home and you know nobody bothers the real impact on that on women um, was that they had no choice and we ended up with a situation you had good traffic victims and you had bad traffic victims The good trafficked victims would say, yes, help, I'm trafficked, I want to go home, please help me IOM, and then, and what's more, I will will testify, and then they uh, they would be given the assistance. The bad trafficked victims would say, no, 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 not trafficked, or I'm trafficked, but I don't want your help, leave me alone, I've got a valid passport, I'm off. Those people didn't even make it into the statistics of having been trafficked, even though they clearly had, so... To be a statistic, you had to be a good traffic victim and do what you were told. Um, bad traffic victim didn't mention the books and may end up as stranded migrants but would not get assistance. So, you know, basically we're, we're talking about coercion here. Um, and it got worse. It got much worse. But that's, that's the, the basic premise that's the, that started to happen because then, with the money that they had, we had excellent NGOs providing assistance. Um, but those excellent NGOs providing assistance, then had to sign protocols with IOM in order to continue working on trafficking because IOM got the agreement with the government and the funding from the donors. So IOM, the international community representatives, then control what the national gov- non-governmental organisations were doing, and we have a situation where from... what had been really good facilities for women, you've got a situation where women, when, say, if they did say they wanted assistance, they'd be taken to the shelter mobile phone taken, jewellery taken, money taken, not allowed to go outside, and effectively locked up and incarcerated. And so so basically the control of migration approach and the law enforcement approach absolutely swamped all other considerations, and the women were being held more or less um, illegally for long periods of time. And this was the pattern then from about 2003 onwards. This was the pattern that developed was that this whole shelter arrangement became hijacked and changed a catalytic moment was, in fact, this, this Operation Mirage, very aptly called, which was a whole massive, um, there's a SECI organisation based in Bucharest who, um, essentially, they're trying to work on organised crime in Eastern Europe. Um, they decided that what they would do is have coordinated bar rates, you know, stop having done so well and shows what a good model this is. We won't just do it in Bosnia, we'll do it across the region. Um... The good thing about that was that the government in Bosnia, with a little bit of prodding from us, panicked (laughs) and said, how are we going to do this? Because you've told us that we've got to have human rights protections. We can't do that if they're going to come in and do law enforcement on a massive scale. Um, What do we do? So we managed to get them to issue a temporary instruction. But the temporary instruction was the best law that I have seen yet on trafficking because it provided for and this is the halfway stage before the NGOs have been completely taken over by IOM, it provided for an integrated approach so that essentially you didn't do a bar raid unless you knew you could close it because it was conducting illegal activity. You had evidence to show that you could close it because if you closed it, then you could take the women out because they had nowhere to go that night, and you could offer them a place to go to for the night. You would not question them. You would take them to an NGO shelter where they would get food, clothing, assistance. They would also get, and crucial, they'd get legal advice as to what their status was. You know, their legal status as migrants, their legal status as potential witnesses, their legal status as, you know, as, individuals, not, as, as uh, individuals within a country where they were not entitled to work. Then they could make informed choices as to what they would want to do. Law enforcement were not allowed to go near and approach them for two weeks And then if on the judgment of the shelter manager after conversations with the women, they wanted to stay in Bosnia, they could get an extension of a visa on humanitarian grounds to give them more time to decide what they wanted to do. So it was all really agency, agency to the women to decide what they wanted to do. Now that to me, was great and it worked. It actually worked, we have to say it's so tragic really, I'm glad I'm not evaluated on the success stories I have done, but um, for two months, that was great, two months out of six years. because there were several instances during Seki, but then after Seki as well, where that system was put into place. The most famous one was was where they raided, finally, Sherwood Castle. I can give you the background story. It's almost hilarious. It's another one of those absolutely ridiculous stories. But the the local police force did it very, very well. Essentially, they went and raided Sherwood Castle, um, where there were tigers, to remind people of the tigers uh, that had been part of the the militias during the conflict. They raided it. They managed to rescue six women who were behind a locked door, said, not traffic, not traffic. They said, we don't care. Closing the bar. Do you want to go to a shelter? They said, yes, okay, we'll go to a shelter, but we're not trafficked. Um, They went there, and they spent a month in the shelter, and during that time, they played with the little puppy. They got um, therapy. They got everything, and by the time the four weeks were over, they were furious, and they wanted the prosecution, and they realized they were safe. They had this security thing going for them. So they were prepared to testify. Um, then it all changed, because then it got taken. It with The international prosecutor decided it was too high risk in the shelter they were in. Took them to a closed centre run by IOM. And we nearly lost it right there, because they wanted them just desperately to go home. Um, long story short, <clears throat> they did testify. The guy plea bargained. He got nine years. We managed to arrange for third country resettlement for all six of them. One of them didn't want to go, but Interesting. They were given two choices. One was Canada. And they didn't want Canada because Canada was too far and eventually they wanted to go home. Um, So that worked. And it worked in several other cases as well. But then, law enforcement approach. Uh, You probably know about the United States uh, United States TIP agreements, transferring, trafficking in persons agreements. Bosnia was in Tier 2. It started in Tier 3, they went to Tier 2. At that stage, it was thought, the criteria applied, number of prosecutions, number of women rescued. We hadn't had enough. The reason we hadn't had enough, because of your lame human rights protection stuff, delays them having, the police having access to them, and that access is absolutely critical. We've got to interview them right away. Your temporary instruction is not valid. Look to the criminal law. The criminal law now allows, amended in 2003, allows for prosecutions at state level. We must accelerate the process. Now you'll be interviewed by the police first, And then you'd be taken to a shelter, maybe. And what happened? The women immediate contact with the police and law enforcement, no. Not trafficked, don't want to say anything, too scared, too coerced, won't give evidence, and then you've blown it. And as a result of that, we hardly had any women coming forward. So you move the goalposts. What you then do is that you want assistance, you'll testify. And if you don't testify, you'll stay in the shelter. Or will deport you and put that stamp on your passport saying that you've been deported. If you've got that stamp on your passport saying you've been deported, you can't then try to migrate again for a very long period of time. So it's a Hobson's choice. You cooperate. So basically it's coercive testimony. And that means law law enforcement has really lost the plot. Um, We had women, one woman in particular, absolutely not trafficked, claimed not trafficked at all. She was in a shelter for 18 months before they finally let her cross the border. Um, all of which is you know, totally ridiculous. Um, we, and then not only does that not work, but you can imagine any lawyers in the room, any defense counsel, the first thing I'd say if someone's been in a shelter for that amount of time is, excuse me, coerced testimony. She's not telling the truth. She's just, you know, you've told her to say this. She's agreeing to say it because she wants to go home now and she doesn't want to be locked up anymore. And, of course, that's what they did. And then you end up with plea bargains, plea bargains which will actually negotiate to the lowest common denominator um, less than the, what the law says in order to get prosecution, so your numbers go up, so you get your statistics, so you don 't have to be in tier three, and you don 't lose your eighty million worth of assistance, which eighty million dollars worth of assistance, which is what the consequence of being in tier three would have been for Bosnia. so <clears throat> not the happiest of stories in relation to you know, the major thrust of what was happening up until two thousand and five, and then we have the fundamental change. what was the difference? In 2003, Unmib left. From then, there was a reduction in the international community's presence. There was a, the market shrank. The illegitimate was in the process of being legitimised so that effectively the, um, the extremes of trafficking were changed. And it's now time, I think, just to say a little bit about what the victims were going through because, as said, the first part, extreme violence. Then women are survivors... They don't just sort of sit there and be victims. They have survival strategies, and that's what these women were doing. And many of them say, okay, fine, I have been forced into prostitution. My survival strategy is to give up resisting. I'll go with the flow. I'll pay off my debt. And then with the legitimization, so-called, through the money laundering and then the greater discretion, if you like, in the choice of clients, the reduction in the market and all the rest of it, they worked in the sex industry. And the last few I met before I left said, you know, I wish you guys would leave us alone because... Basically, I now work, I am saving money. When I have 2,000 euros, I will cross the border myself and I go back with dignity as a success. If I go back through the IOM programs, I am labeled a prostitute. And then I do not have the respect. I do not have anything other than the stigma of being returned. Um, So we weren't listening. So, but they had a complete change in what was happening. From um, about 2005, there were hardly any women from Romania, Bulgaria, Moldova, none of the the original sending countries, hardly any of them. In fact, we did analysis of the the migration uh, statistics of border crossings, and more women were going back than were coming in, far more. And the people who were coming were coming from Serbia and Montenegro, and if you talked to them, they'd come to work in the sex industry. And they were well cross if they got um, intercepted, Because they were saying, we can come and go as we want. We have three-month visas from our identity cards. So there's a whole different war game going on, and partly it had been as a result of the approach that had been taken by the the legal framework, the law enforcement approach, and the migration approach, and our inability to understand the nature of the violence that was being, or the crimes that were being committed against the women and their survival techniques. Now, I realise I'm going on and on and on, as I knew I would when I get into this subject. I do apologise. I will conclude... Um, why does all this matter, and why does all this matter in relation to trafficking generally? Um, clearly, from what I've said, you see, we did not do well in Bosnia. We did not do a good job. Um, and I think Martina will sort of endorse that comment tomorrow. Um, one of the major, major consequences of, of this was by not doing well, by turning a blind eye, but then by, by then looking at it from a trafficking as a sex industry and as, a prosecu- and, and as a, um, an organised criminal activity without re- recognising the subtleties and the nuances within that, without dealing with it as a, a human rights concern, and, as something, and not dealing with it from the perspective of what we must do about those in the international community that are perpetuating a market, we led to an economic situation in Bosnia, the ramifications of which are for of the historians. But it is quite considerable because the millions, the absolute millions that are being made by those engaging in trafficking is uncalculable, incalculable. Um, Suitcases are full of money. You you can do the math. A woman would cost 2,000 euros to buy. She has sex with 10, 15, 20 guys a day at 100, 100 a pop and different charging rates for internationals and for locals. Plus all the drinks, plus everything else on top. She works seven days a week. doesn't take more than two days to repay the initial 2000 that she's already got. From then on, it's pure profit and very low-risk activity. You just need a bit to pay off the bribes, just to make sure that the police are happy, that the prosecutors are happy, and that sort of thing. Um, so, m- so much money being made, and then that money being used to make sure that the local officials, who are then totally corrupt in your pocket... Are then playing the game. They have a vested interest in not having the right sort of law enforcement because they don't want that little gravy train to end. You then end up with people in positions of authority who are entirely linked with illegal activities. In the meantime, you are preventing the formal economy from developing because you don't, the informal economy does not create permanent tra- um, employment, it does not allow for the collection of taxes, they don't have contracts. And then you starve the possibility of in- inward investment, so you don't then end up with an economic structure which allows for, for employment. So you end up creating a situation which is you know, the entire economy is dependent on these guys. So the only employer in town are the traffickers. So the young guys, they want to be drivers, they want to be bouncers, they want to be barmen, they want to be whatever they can to work for these guys and have the bling and have the cars because it's the only way, it's the only show in town. And as a result, you've starved Bosnia of any real serious economic development in real terms. And that has been perpetuated in various different areas as well because they don't just do trafficking in people. They do timber. They do pharmaceuticals. They do drugs. They do um, even 200 million on um, just basic uh, bathroom products. You know, if it moves, we transport it, we control it, we don't pay. So they get away with it. So huge impact on Bosnia, a huge, huge impact on the human rights of women. What does our office have to say about it? Mary Robinson, when she launched the principles and guidelines, our office has principles and guidelines, um, she said that whatever measures we take, they shall not adversely affect the human rights and dignity of the persons, and that we must examine the relationship between the intention of anti-trafficking laws, policies and interventions, and their real impact, and distinguish between those which reduce the harm and those which transfer the problem from one place or one group to another. And of course, being Mary Robinson, she was right. Absolutely right. And when I said at the beginning that effectively trafficking is all about the position of the observer, it is from our perspective, because we are the observers. We are sitting there. We're doing our legal analysis. We're doing our migration statistics. We're doing our crime, criminal statistics. We're doing whether prostitution is good or bad or indifferent. But we are doing our objective analysis, the person who is subject about this is the woman. She's the only one who really knows what's going on. And what we don't do in trafficking is we don't listen enough to that. And that is where it should lie. Agency belongs to those who are in the process of being trafficked. Interventions must be appropriate to their needs, their rights and our respect for what it is that has driven them to try to cope with what is one of the most insidious international crimes. That exists today. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: second. Um,
0: first of all, I just want to thank Madeline for an, in- an incredible talk. Um, I can't imagine getting a more frank and informative version from anyone. Um, So thank you. Um, And now we'll take questions. Uh, We have a microphone if we can get it to work. We'll use it.
2: Um, I was just wondering if you could sort of give us an idea of just the magnitude of this problem worldwide. You may have covered that earlier in the lecture and I, I was late and I apologize for that. But if you could just sort of give us a, an idea of the magnitude in terms of numbers of people uh, who are being affected by this, especially women.
1: This is an incredible question, because there is no answer. Um, it depends on who you listen to, how you define the problem, etc. cetera. Um, ILO, and they focus very much on the exploitative labor element, the labor output. They will tell you I think it's around 12 million, which is an awful lot of people who are held in, who are moved, you know, who basically fulfill the definitions, but who end up in some form of exploitative labor, um, the majority being um, from in, in sort of Asia and Africa. Um, IOM will tell you something different, and UNICEF will tell you something different again, so it all depends on how you actually do the calculations as to and who, is, who is defined. Um, but I think the ILO definition is probably the one which is closest to the truth and because it seems to be borne out by the cost of interventions and all the rest of it. But it's never going to be accurate. I mean, the very I hate the question because it's always so difficult to answer, um, and that's not an answer. You know, it's so difficult to answer but because by its very nature it's an illegal activity. Um, so we don't know. And, you know, what happened in Bosnia and in other countries of the Balkans, including Kosovo, was the numbers would be talked up in order to get money, um, even though without evidence. So, for example, we'd see, um, we'd hear all the time, it is an enormous and growing problem, we need more money to deal deal with it, without any evidence. So you'd see women who had not been trafficked, um, but who were working in the sex industry, would then be deemed to be trafficked in order to keep the statistics up. So, you know, again, it's a question of definition, but I think the 12 million from the ILO is probably the closest you're going to get as being reasonably accurate. <coughs> uh, can you
0: say something about You mentioned sexually transmitted diseases and other risks. Could you say something more about that? And um, I was also wondering about pregnancy. What happens in the event of pregnancy? Are children being drawn into this, the children of, of women? Could you speak... To that point.
1: Yeah, it, it's very again. Um, it happened in different phases, and in each phase, it was different. In the first phase, where there was extreme violence, um, women who became pregnant were just dumped across the border because they were not deemed to be useful. Or there was a particular hospital where you could—they were forced to have abortions. Um, on the HIV front, at that time, can you believe it? We had several occasions where the. Um, Local police would drive women from the brothel to the medical facilities for HIV testing on a regular basis. If they were found to be positive, they'd be dumped across the border. And this was seen to be a legal activity in, uh, in terms of a public health policy. So, that again was early stages when we were able to intervene um, as much as we could. The healthcare that was provided, and this is a good thing IOM did, the, the healthcare that was provided by, um, through IOM. Did look into the protection and the treatment of um, sexually transmitted diseases and the consequences of unwanted pregnancy. Um, some women did have children, and there were several cases of, of women who were trailing, who had been trafficked with their little ones with them. Um, and then there were huge problems about the nationalities of these little ones because clearly, under, under Bosnian law at that time, who knew who the father was? The father was the one who transmitted the nationality, so they were the daughters, sons of. Illegal migrants, so-called, who had Bosnian citizenship but couldn't be registered because the father wasn't known, or American or British or whatever. But so there were huge consequences for that to, to get them out to get them home. Um, and also the risk assessments when it came to children in that situation, risk assessments for being repatriated, because we'll never forget that a lot of people who returned were at risk from retribution from those because they left, especially in the early days. Um, retribution again in the late, in laterally if they were thought to have testified so yeah I mean it was a huge huge problem and one woman who had been in, in, again in the early stage in Bosnia that I, I didn't speak to her directly but she was interviewed and she had been in the country for three months she had unprotected sex for the entire time with up to 24 guys a day and she was HIV positive so you, you can do the maths you know, what the, the chances of, of uh, HIV having been spread from, from just this one woman.
2: Uh, thank you for a, a lucid and shocking uh, talk. Uh,
1: I wonder if you could uh, conjecture on the demand side of trafficking and here out of the Bosnia context
2: into the context <coughs> of trafficking from Eastern Europe, into Western Europe. Uh,
1: Is the supply is the demand going up uh, or is the demand just being revealed? Um, That's my question on the demand side and on the supply side if repatriation of women is fraught with all of the problems that you've discussed then what's the better policy response uh, as a collective response of governments and the international community? Big questions. Um, the first one on demand. Um, a lot of those who are involved in, in anti-trafficking work are disappointed with the response there has been to demand. Um, whilst there are huge calls for the prosecution of demand, in fact, the, the new European Convention, which has just come into force, calls for um, states to criminalise, to consider criminalization of the demand for uh, exploitative labour, including sex, of course, within that. So all the big talk is about how do you deal with the demand for sex. No one's saying how do you deal with the demand for labor which provides for you know, cheap strawberries or cockles from beaches. Or, we don't talk about that because that's a bit too big. Um, so that's, that's one of the major complaints by ILO and others is that while we're focusing on sex work, we're missing what is in fact a bigger Influence and a more pernicious influence overall, although I stand by the remarks I made earlier, the consequences for women forced into the sex industry are far, far worse. Um, how is it getting bigger? I think that's a very difficult question to answer because how much is it publicity? How much is it sort of now we know what it is, so now we can see it, whereas before it was there, we just didn't pay attention to it. Um, I think also the I would say that the contributory factor has been the closing of borders um, because there is no doubt that the law enforcement and migration approach in Europe has taken the upper hand. The more difficult it is to migrate legally, the more you are dependent on those who will help you to migrate illegally. As a result, you don't migrate safely. So that means that there is an easier supply, if you like. It's a more controlled supply. Um, So that does not help. Um, So that's one and the second part of your question, what could we do better in relation to repatriation? One is to listen to what the women themselves want. Um, at the moment, what we do is we say we have, in most of the Western European countries have these fantastic programs whereby if you come forward and you set testify, you can get a visa for like three weeks more than you would have had if we were going to throw you out when we were going to throw you out in the first place. So Great. Um, Plus, there's no, they aren't actually following through with the idea that there should be civil compensation for what's happening to you. So, if we said, if you testify, we can bring a civil claim on your behalf at the same time, or we can, through the prosecutorial framework, allow for, make a new provision in law for compensation for the wrongs you have suffered, then there is a benefit to staying. Um, and then they could, again, go home with dignity or remain where they are, but take the money and be whatever is safest for them. Um, we don't do that. We don't do that. We, we say, testify, get the assistance, or don't testify, off you go. How we could get round that is, the first one would be allowing for a length of time and much better. And this is something the Human Rights Committee and uh, the Commission, uh, Committee Against Torture have already remarked upon. You must allow for redress, and you must not charge the enormous taxes and lawyers' fees and everything else. state must provide for redress. So if we allowed for that, that would help. Um, the other part would be those who don't want to testify should be assisted to return home but without you know, clutching little IOM bags to show that you know, here I am, I've come back for the IOM, I am a repatriated migrant and well guess what, I'm that age group so clearly I was working as a prostitute. Um, no, we have to find ways in which they want to go back which is usually their own way. Now that is going to cause not a great deal of, of applause from the, the law enforcement migration community because they say, well, you, know, you give her money to go back, she's not going to go back, she's going to stay here. Well, she might want to stay here, but for how long? We don't know. And is it that bad that if a few trafficked women who are given assistance remain in the country for a little bit longer to make a little bit of money and then go home? But no, they talk about floodgates, one of thousands of women from Eastern Europe, you know, flooding into London and elsewhere. Oh, you know, please. Um, so, I think that we have to be a little bit more intelligent and not sort of knee-jerk about the way in which we deal with it. The
2: first, one is a, the first question is a sort of question of definition. Uh, <clears throat> in earlier times, of course, the, the League of Nations did pass conventions which were ratified about how to deal with the traffic in women and children. And the reason they put children in there was because so many of these young women were underage. In fact, a very great proportion. I don't know if that's still true, but it would be useful if you could comment on that. And then secondly, uh, what is the UN able to do today? I mean, you were working with the, the High Commission for Human Rights Is this matter being taken to the General Assembly or through committees? And if so, what is happening on that front?
1: Um, On your first question about children, yeah, unfortunately the ages of those who are trafficked is often under 18, very often under 18. Um, The youngest we saw were were 12, 13, around that age group. There is a lot of trafficking in children specifically for pornography, specifically for begging, um, but the numbers are considerable. Um, and, unfortunately, we don't deal with that particularly well. We don't spot it well enough, and we don't deal with them. This idea of the best interest of the child, which is in the Child Rights Convention, is so ill-determined. So what is in their best interest, and who makes that decision? I mean, for us, it's quite clear. There should be appointed as a ward of court, and social workers must be responsible. Well, they shall not be returned until there's been a whole assessment, a, a threat assessment, both as to if they are return to abusive families, et etc. et cetera as we would do if a child had disappeared from a Western country. But we don't do it for little ones from Eastern Europe, which is just appalling. So we have different standards. Um, yes, so that's, that's one big problem. and So that's another huge discussion. In relation to the UN, I am appalled, of course. Um, again, on this side of the country, I'm appalled. On that side, I'm a little concerned. Um, but on this side of the country, I'm appalled because we have the Secretary General's bulletin, uh, which says zero tolerance... Basically, thou shalt not have sex on mission, which sounds great. Um, But, you know, it's a lot more subtle than that. Having sex on mission can mean falling in love with a national of that country that you're in who's in a perfectly responsible position and having sex with them. Or it can mean raping a 12-year-old. But the consequences are the same. You get repatriated. And the excuse given by the United Nations is that we can can control our staff in terms of and therefore they would go before an administrative tribunal to assess what the uh, penalties should be. But we can't lift we, we won't lift immunity in the country where they should be prosecuted where they committed the offence because that would set a precedent which we're not happy about. We don't want, you know, people like me being prosecuted in places like, you know, Congo or somewhere. Um, because that sets a bad precedent. We don't think it'd get fair trials and there's a possibility of the politicization of the process. Um, so they would have to be tried where? Where, are, where am I going to be tried? Um, the British courts don't have a jurisdiction over me because I'm no longer British for the purpose of a blue passport. I'm an international civil servant. And there's cases being brought to try and say they should be brought where the UN has its basis, so in Geneva or in New York. Um, I don't know where that's going to go, but it'd be good. But the Secretary General should lift the immunity. That must happen. Um, but it's more complicated in relation... And I should say there are... It is now. There are working groups still looking at it, um, To me, it's simple. You know, it is quite simple that if you have committed a criminal offence, then immunity must be lifted. And we'd only have to have a few real serious test cases, and you would go there, or we will try in New York, we will try in Geneva. Um, In relation to the other situations where you fall in love and have sex, well, let's be sensible about it. You know, we are adults here. That if you are in a position of having sex with someone who is in a position of dependency, thou shalt not. Any corporation will tell you the same. You don't do that. So what you do is you actually take it to your supervisor and you say, okay, fine, I'm in this situation. Can I be removed to a different job? or you know, Because in the UN you can do that very easily. Um, and if no solution is possible, then basically you have to be repatriated to continue your work in your headquarters and you have to work out your own love life. But you can't continue to have that relationship where it could be seen as abusive. And it could be abusive. Because all these guys who are telling you that they've got to have this relationship, they've all got wedding rings on, so, you know, where is the, the line going to be drawn? And the other thing is the, the, the troop sending contingents. Um, because they say, oh, can't do that, because if we start being very strict about the, send, the, troop set, the, the sending countries, they won't provide us with troops. And basically they are the ones who have to then discipline their own if they are caught doing, uh, in, in performing sexual exploitation. Fine, but that's just not true either. Because in real life, everybody wants to be part of the (laughs) troop contributions because the GDP of some countries is is up to 50%. Fiji, Uruguay, um, Ghana, they're the ones who send them, and you make a lot of money on it. And the guys who come will pay huge amounts of money to come because they get um, more money by working for the UN than they would do if they were serving back home. So don't tell me that you can't. You know, if you say, if you don't do your training, if you don't have strong disciplinary measures and they are seen to be taken, we, won't, you know, we, we don't, won't have you in the UN peacekeeping forces. Don't tell me that wouldn't have an effect, because it would. But we won't do it, and we use the excuse. So I'm afraid there's still a lot of obfuscation and foot dragging, and basically the boys will be boys, and we're not worrying enough. Oh, well, they wanted to do um, everybody having manda- mandatory um, um, tests to see whether, on, you know, so, uh, basically DNA tests... And I can just imagine the UN being so competent. I'm sure I would be fathering children all over the place, you know, so. (laughs) Uh,
2: Again, uh, if we go back to the demand and the market, we heard about Bosnia, about situation of war or peacekeeping cooperation. And we know that the United Nations takes measures in order to eradicate the demand or engaging on the part of the peacekeeping uh, staff, let's say. But the truth is that most of the trafficking happens, occurs, uh, or finishes at least, ends in the countries of destination. It's not in Eastern Europe where the trafficking actually occurs. So can we use the, let's say, agreement of all the countries in the United Nations that the staff should not engage in uh, trafficking by using, by being users, consumers of such service, and push the countries in the United Nations to acknowledge that also some of their citizens are consumers and how would you separate this question, punishing the consumers of trafficking from the criminalization of the prostitution and punishing just users of prostitution?
1: Um, um, that's a very good question. Very good question. Um, first one, a disclaimer, I don't think the UN deals with it properly. So let's not use that as a model. Um, but let us use the, the, European, the European Convention, which, say, calls for the consideration of the criminalisation of the exploitation. The debate on um, the sex work, pro-sex work, abolition approach, whatever it would be, has paralysed, I think, a lot of our sensible discussions around trafficking. Um, when you're dealing with trafficking, it's, it's not, it's not um, ironic in a way that you know, it's illegal in Bosnia. It's always been illegal in Bosnia. It's very illegal in Kosovo, and yet it happens. Um, it's also not unsurprising that, in fact, if you've ever seen the film Lilia Forever, it was shot in Sweden. It's a true story. You know, the, the, the Swedish law, anti-prostitution law, criminalizes the male user of or purchaser of sex, which is great. And it came about as lots of discussion, you know, informed discussion in Sweden. That's how they wanted to regulate the relationship between men and women. I mean, I think, in a way, it's, it's loading against the guy, fine, because he's the one who should be extraordinarily embarrassed that he is buying sex. You know, they all say it's degrading for women. It's not degrading for women, it's degrading for men. So let's do that gender analysis and say you lot are disgraceful by buying sex. You know. um, that's a different conversation. And prostitution, I think, is a different conversation because I've had so many meetings with police From countries where it's legal, where it's illegal, where it's partially criminalized, where it's blind eyed, whatever. Um, And none of it works. None of it works. Um, Because the police are the enforcers and they don't understand the difference. Um, The police are often users, so they don't understand what it is. And as a mechanism for regulating um, trafficking, the criminalization does the same as the criminalization, well, the migration controls, it sends it underground. So we can't access the women. They can't escape. And if they do escape, then they are rightly concerned that they're going to be prosecuted because the whole consent issue, although it's very clear from the trafficking protocol, that when any of the above measures have been used, consent is vitiated. You cannot consent to sex in a situation where you've been held in exploitative labor. No, you can't. Excellent. Well, let's use that. And we've just, um, as the Office of the like High Commissioner, um, and I could bore on about this for ages, but I'm sure you're going to shut me because I am going to be a law borner. Um, we think that there is a definite possibility of prosecuting men who have sex with women who have been trafficked, trafficked for the offence. Um, and I won't go through the whole legal stuff, but I'm sure we'll, we can discuss that later, and we will be releasing this fairly soon. It's based on a whole scenario that I discussed with, with, um, with you some time ago about an, an analogy between a prosecution that took place as a result of rape in FOCHA under international criminal law, and what happens in, in non-conflict. And I say that because I think Martini you were there at the time. The Focci decision had come out where this woman had been, it had been decided that rape in this, this circumstances, where she was kept in exactly the same condition. She was held in a, in a facility, in a, in actually in a, a private apartment. She was multiple raped. She was made to the cleaning. But she was allowed out every now and then. Couldn't go anywhere because she was in a Serb enclave. Couldn't go anywhere. Forced to have sex with a commanding officer. It was prosecuted successfully as rape and a crime against humanity. Um, I met someone who exactly the same thing had happened to her, exactly. Um, and she was being prosecuted for prostitution, for immigration offences, and she was about to be deported unless she was successfully prosecuted for status offences, in which case she was going to serve two years in a Bosnian prison. And I say that was in the early days. Well, what's wrong with this picture? All we've done is we've moved the dates forward, and we've gone from conflict to non-conflict, but the experience of the woman was exactly the same. So why can't we prosecute adequately? So what we then started thinking about was, well, how can we turn that into a prosecution of those guys who buy sex um, from women who've been trafficked? And get away from the, this polarizing debate about legalization, criminalization, whatever, you know, moral obligations, moral morality and sex work and you know, whatever. And just talk about practicalities. What's really gonna work? Because this is what we're talking about. What will work for women and for anti-trafficking activities? So what we said is that, Trafficking is part of an organized criminal activity. There is a common criminal purpose, as in genocide and in the acts that were committed um, in, in the, in the Fortune diamond. So there you've got a common criminal purpose. That common criminal purpose is trafficking, to make money. You, as the purchaser of the end product of the forced labor, can be brought within that common criminal enterprise. And the test that was applied from the ICTY and ICTR jurisprudence is that you knew, should have known, or were reckless as to whether or not there was a criminal enterprise of which you were taking advantage. We are saying that absent any, anything to the contrary, you are at risk. If you are a purchaser of sex, then you are at risk of being brought within that common criminal enterprise and you can be prosecuted for the crime you commit as part of that criminal enterprise, which will be rape, which would be a very serious thing to be prosecuted for, and any ancillary. Um, assaults that you may commit on the way through. The way you have to do that is in order to make it clear, because the European Convention is very clear that you actually have to make sure, as a matter of law, it is known and there has to be sufficient awareness and clarity of law. So we have to make sure that there are indicators. So if the government goes out and say like, most of the women working in London are, in fact, foreign women who have been brought here for purposes of sexual exploitation, you're on notice. So if you go to someone, and they are, in fact, from Eastern Europe, and they do not speak the language, and it's been on the websites of the boys who are using prostitutes, and, well, she's not very good because she doesn't seem very willing, and she doesn't speak English, and, 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 you're pretty much on notice that she may not be consensual, so you don't go there. And if you do go there, then you're at risk. You should have known we're reckless. Now, it's much more sophisticated than that, because this is the sort of thing that spakes ours in terms of international law to explain how you get there, what the indicators might be, what the consequence could be, what the nature of the criminal offence would be. But we've, we've done it, we've put it out there, and we're hoping that it will be used by the European states when they are considering the criminalisation of the, the prosecution of demand. It only concentrates on sex, um, sexual exploitation. It doesn't deal with the other forms of labour exploitation at the moment, because we're hoping by analogy we'll be able then to push it in that direction. Um, But I think that's important. I think it's very important to have a look at it from a different framework, to try and move away from this debate and be practical because, you know, sad to say, we are not going to cure, um, cure, stop, prevent trafficking by looking at it from the prostitution lens because that is one of those things. You know, my my list of things, you do one out of proportion to the others, you'll blow it. Um, And I think that is is very much the issue that we have come across in in trying to to deal um, deal with the issue. So I hope that answers the question.
0: Okay, I think we'll
2: take um, one last question. Is there also an under-punishment on the pimp side or just because of definitions of, on what crime they're committing or if they're not committing a crime in certain countries
1: or scenario? Is that so it's a compl- an under-punishment.
2: Under under-punishment or under-criminalization of the pimp, um, you know, if you're talking about all the sides of, who could be punished or who could be held responsible, uh, is it also not uh, categorized as a crime in some areas or difficult to categorize and that's why maybe they get away or keep doing it?
1: Good question. Um, not, I don't know of any jurisdiction where the pimp is not penalized. Um, why and how they are not, well, why they are not it, it sort of in the focus of, um, of law enforcement is a very good question um, because it tends to be the women that are picked up and not the pimps. Uh, it tends to be the women that are prosecuted, not the pimps. Um, and in the context of trafficking, of course, the pimp is part of the organised criminal, the, the common criminal enterprise and therefore has a much more substantive role and should be prosecuted as part of that and the crimes he committed, which would be aiding and abetting rape. So you'd think it would be right up there and they could have the full force of the law thrown at them. Um, It doesn't happen. I think, again, that's why it's it's so difficult, but I think you listen to the attitudes of some of the police and that's where it's coming from. You listen to the attitudes of some of the the prosecutors and that's where it's coming from. It's back to the original prostitution being a pathological illness issue for for the Bosnian police that there is this element that she consented to it. And even if she didn't consent to it first, she would have consented to it later, and she's getting paid. So, you know, it's the focus as in all <coughs> all crimes of sexual violence. The focus is on the woman. And until we get over that and start looking at the crimes that are committed against her and remove the necessity of, of testifying. And good police will tell you in trafficking cases we don't need the women to testify because your intelligence-based policing will have done, put the entire picture together and she can just go home or do whatever she wants. But how many good police are there doing that? I and mean, that's the problem. Um, so it all becomes dependent on her testimony and then we lose an awful lot of the picture. But I think it's a very good question, but my, my answer would be quite simply if we've got to you know, start looking at the nature of the crime and the real perpetrators and take the focus off the woman and the issue of prostitution. Yeah. Thank
0: yeah. you.